0: This is Guilty Conscience, casual discussions on transfer pricing, tax treaties, and related topics. A podcast from Scadden that invites thought leaders and industry experts to discuss pressing transfer pricing issues, international tax reform efforts, and tax administration trends. We also dig into the innovative approaches companies are using to navigate the international tax environment and address the obligation everyone loves to hate. Now your hosts Scadden Partners, David Farhat and Nate Carden.
1: Hi, everybody. Once again, Nate Carden, David Farhat, Amon Kyler, Stefan Victor, and you're listening to Guilty Conscience. Today, we're going to start a new series that we refer to as the Spotlights, which will focus on people in the tax community, various walks of life. Uh, private practice, executives, etc., talking about various issues, uh, careers, diversity, and various other topics as they come up. Today, we're going to kick it off with a conversation about diversity, particularly in the tax community, uh, which I consider to be a critically important topic, and I know a lot of others do too. David, why don't you give us some initial thoughts as we start the conversation?
2: Sure. Happy to. And happy Black History Month, all. Um, It seems appropriate to kick off the diversity spotlight on Black History Month. I am a bit torn about that because a lot of these issues are kind of packed into February or packed into their little space when they should be talked about um, throughout the year. And I assure you, we plan to do that. Um, As Nate said, this is a spotlight series and we plan to do it over time and, and have guests in. But I'm excited about doing this and I'm excited about using the platform to talk about this. Given the setup and, and given the conversation, I do uh, want to touch on kind of three main issues that we're going to talk about. Um, one, the problem, I think, as Nate articulated, it's something not just in the legal community, but I think it's particularly acute in tax when we're talking about diversity. Uh, why DEI matters. Um, it is the right thing to do, but I think it goes beyond just being the right thing to do. I think it makes business sense and things along those lines. And also, what are the DEI strategies we're seeing? What's effective? What isn't effective? I think there's been some frustration amongst a lot of people since the joint the, the the incidents that 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 followed George George Floyd and all the kind of corporate uh, messaging around DEI and where we are now. That we're almost two years now past that point. So we wanna talk about all of these things and we wanna bring people in to talk about how it's impacted their careers personally and how DEI can can benefit from tax. Um, on a personal note, I am a big fan of tax for one big reason, the impact it's had on my life. From a career perspective, from a financial perspective, from a just having fun, I enjoy it. Lots of the people I meet, I've met in tax um, despite background are sometimes first-generation college graduates, a lot of first-generation immigrants, um, and they've made a life for themselves and they've thrived in tax practice. So that there's a a, a lack of diversity. uh, For me, I find uh, uh, a little disappointing because I think people of all walks of life could could thrive here. Also, I think tax takes a a certain kind of creativity and having different backgrounds enhances that creativity, and it brings a lot more to the client. It brings a lot more to um, the government, and it brings a lot more to the practice. But I've talked for quite a bit, and we want to have a conversation, so I'll kind of stop there and throw it over to Amanda Stefan to see if they have any comments before we dive in.
3: My only comment here is I think you guys covered everything. I'm really excited about this conversation. I think, like you guys said, it's important. It's timely. And I'm very glad that um, we are starting this series with this episode.
0: Yeah. And to echo Iman, I'm I'm excited for this conversation. I think that the guests that we are working on and have lined up are really great, but this conversation will be a fantastic
2: introduction. Thanks so much, Stefan. So to dive in, should we we start with the problem? I know the the problem for me could, can be articulated as um, being a, a very lonely experience. Starting down my road in tax, and I had a, a weird introduction to tax at Syracuse Law School. Professor N- Nassau, so most people who went to Syracuse and did tax will have a Professor Nassau story. I had a conversation with Professor Nassau. I had no interest in tax whatsoever, but I was doing corporate law and I had to take tax. I wanted to do... Uh, International tax, but I had to take Fed tax one as a prerequisite. So I go to his office and I say, look, I'm not interested in tax. I need to get this over with. I want to take international tax. Can I take them both at the same time as opposed to as a prerequisite? And he goes, are you sure you can handle that? And being the arrogant law student I was at the time, I said, eh, hey, it's whatever. I'll, I'll do it. And absolutely fell in love. And, and I don't think that's overstating what happened when, when I went into tax. But from then on, it was it was an existence where you look around and you're the only one that looks like you in the room. I uh, left Syracuse and went to Georgetown and I felt the same in my LLM program. I think in my LLM program, there was one other Black person and a few other people of color and not that many women. So being in a room with a lot of people that didn't look like you and the uh, the, the pressures that come... With that and the expectations you have with yourself, and the expectations that others have with you, can can create a lot of pressure. So wanting to talk about these issues and wanting to kind of demystify the path going through tax, and not just demystify it, but for a lot of young people to let them know that sometimes they're not seeing ghosts; these things are are are, are real. Um, as a comedian once said, you know, everyone agrees there's racism nowadays, but um, no one can seem to find a racist. And I think that goes across with a lot of, with, with a lot of different, different isms and what's systemic and what's, uh, unconscious and things of that nature. So to unpack that in this uh, conversation for me is a, um, it is a big plus again, talking a lot, but we should kind of throw it back and, and, and have the conversation.
3: Yeah. I think your comment about feeling isolated really resonates and also, I think uh, one of the reasons why there is a lack of diversity in the legal profession and more so in the tax profession, I think, is because tax, a lot of whenever I tell people I'm a tax lawyer, folks don't know what I do. Oftentimes, I hear the comment, you must be really busy in April. And I'm like, no, <laughs> April, nothing happens in April that's special. So I think that's probably one of the major reasons a lot of like especially diverse lawyers, they just don't know what it is. You know, They don't know that like you don't only have to work at the IRS to be a tax lawyer. Mm-hmm. So I think like that educational aspect is important. Another thing too that really makes this problem worse is cultural difference. When you're the only person from a specific culture, for example, for me, I was born in Ethiopia and I moved here when I was 11. So I remember specifically during uh, m- one of my uh, summer externships in law school, I was at a dinner and I didn't know a band. Somebody named, it's a very common band. I probably yeah. should have known. And everyone was just so astonished at their reaction. And of course, everyone is well-meaning. Nobody did, nobody was intentionally trying to make me feel bad. But like, I took that to heart. I'm like, oh my God, I really have to study like the bands if I'm going to make it in these settings, you know? And I think just being cautious about little things like that could really, really um, help in the long run. Mm-hmm. But to your point, I think most people are very well-intentioned. Most people try to do the right thing. But having these kind of conversations, now hopefully our listeners would know if somebody doesn't know a specific band, it's not the end of the world. So I think that's uh, that. That's probably one of my goals for this podcast is just picking up on little nuggets to make it a more inclusive place for everyone.
2: Now, I really like that point about kind of the uh, ubiquity of whiteness in the tax practice, right? it's um having conversations with a lot of my professional friends it's you have to learn how to navigate whiteness to survive in corporate america and it's very unfair because corporate america or whiteness in corporate america and how we define whiteness is a conversation we can have because i think all of us in some ways from a class perspective gender perspective kind of phase in and out of whiteness right but having to understand it to survive while whiteness has to pay no attention to otherness, right? It can make you feel very, very isolated. It's like, this is what I am. This is how I think. This is how I approach things. And I like your story about the band because there's a um, an assumption made, I think, at times about competence, whether it's intentional or unintentional, when you don't have that knowledge of whiteness or that ability to relate to whiteness. And I think the same thing can be said about maleness. If you can't kind of relate to that piece or, you know, kind of the... I had a conversation with a young woman once that I worked with at, um, at EY. I thought she was spectacular. I think she's spectacular. Amazing communicator. I thought she was wonderful with clients. And we were having a conversation. I said, look, this issue we're working on, I think it's yours. You've run it. You've done everything. And she said, well... um I'm a bit nervous. And I said, why? She said, well, I'm not good with clients. And I stopped. I said, I think that's your best quality. Get working with you. I think you do that so well. She was like, well, I don't get along with them. I don't feel like I can sell. And after unpacking it, it was because she didn't do the kind of back slapping, go to the bar, what has been kind of stereotypically related to or aligned with selling. And I said, look, that's not what being good with the client is. You know, that's something completely different. You communicate clearly. You give them the the deliverables on time. You let them know what we need. You let them know what's lacking. And you never miss on that. And they have come to rely on you for that. But we, and I say we, would ignore all of that good stuff because we don't fit into a certain kind of box. And I think that's some of the conversation I want to have with people about, you know, what does a career look like? What does success look like? As opposed to these stereotypes that we have that may be built on bias.
1: You know, David, listening to that, it's really interesting because it's just easier, right? For me, because I don't worry about phasing in and out, right? It's just kind of there. And in a lot of ways, I think the things that you're talking about anxiety about relating to people etc are things that uh, put a lot of pressure on people that make the you know an already hard job a lot more difficult and the reality of the situation is i don't get along with a lot of other people either but i just don't
2: <laughs> And that's what we love about, about it, you, Nate.
1: I, it's well known that the universe is small, right? You, you, you get me. You take what you get. But the, I think your point, which I think is a critical one, is that that's a pretty easy thing for me because I don't have this sort of constant drum of feeling like I'm
2: having to prove myself. Mm-hmm. And and the um the the judgment of it. Well, and I I think. One of the reasons you and I get along, Nate, is I have been described as a curmudgeon or angry a lot of the times, right? And for a lot of my career, I worried about the trope of the angry Black guy, right? Now, I will admit, once I became, I made partner and had some kind of success, I was a lot more comfortable in that space because I kind of didn't care. And... It's harder coming up to kind of embrace some of that and embrace that your anger or your attitude might be righteous. Similar to Amon, I I carry
0: two identities with me that, that I'm Black and that I'm gay. And I think those have had competing challenges or they've exacerbated one another. I think to speak directly, I have to prove myself to be competent because I'm Black. And as far as my sexuality, I have to prove that I'm presentable or I have to prove that I'm not too controversial by either my mannerisms or anything that can be attributed to, you know, my sexuality. So it's been a journey and I think it, it's still, you know, I'm still on that journey. And I think what I've had to choose throughout my career, how um, much of myself can I bring to work without it being like seeming like a performative political statement. If someone asked me how my weekend was, what did I do this weekend? My answer is very much, you know, it's very measured. Just thinking this will seem political and it's mm-hmm. my truth. And I think, I don't know which, which I get to choose or which I get to present first or which is more loud in the room. But, you know, as an intersectional person, I have both of those weighing
2: you know on me at the same time i think that's very interesting because in the grand scheme of things if we're tax professionals doing tax that shouldn't matter right and i say shouldn't but in a way that's not true because our identities shape who we are we live in a world that you know your experiences will depend on your your identity and for some of that, I think it enhances tax practice. What, what do I mean? Because how we look at rules, how we interpret things, how we get comfortable with the law is that that's impacted. And I think there's value in that. I know there's a lot of pain behind going through that. And we don't go through that pain for the benefit of our clients or for whatever else. But I think there's a value in that diversity when it comes to tax practice. It's a shame in a sense that we have a structure or a system that caused some of these problems. And again, going into this idea of what's systemic and what's unconscious. As a lawyer, I get frustrated with the unconscious piece a little bit. And let me me explain that, and I I know I'm making a bit of a, a transition here. When we went to law school, we were told what a lawyer does is communicate and research. Right. So you're you're reading and you're you're reading and you're writing or you're reading and you're speaking. And as a black person, there were certain mistakes that were highlighted when you make them. Like I have always been a bit self-conscious about my writing because I haven't been the best writer. And I've taken a beating, sometimes fair, sometimes unfair, throughout my career, about my writing. I have seen writing that I've done side by side with some colleagues. And I've seen myself take a beating from my writing and I'm looking at it and I'm like, well, if I'm getting beaten up here, this person should be getting destroyed, but it's kind of going through. So when you get to the point where you're dealing with lawyers or the practice of law and especially tax lawyers, where you have to do all of this research and people say, well, I don't understand, or I I don't know that. There's a part of you that kind of rages because you're like, How can you say you're a lawyer on one hand and not do this simple research on the other hand? When I've had to live my life, going back to Iman's point, being self-conscious about not knowing a band, I've got to do that kind of research. Right. (laughs) Right? right. I've got to know all of my stuff. I've got to know all of your stuff. And then I've got to know the law. And I've got to know how to be a professional. and I want to unpack a lot of that for a couple of reasons. One, to kind of give light to the broader population as to what it's like to be a diverse attorney practicing. But for me, more importantly, for a lot of the young people, and and I'm repeating myself a bit here, who have to go through this and think I'm alone in doing this, or I'm seeing ghosts. These barriers do exist. You can get over them. And not just that you can get over them, but also to point the barriers out to the folks who can knock them down. David, as as you were coming
1: up, right, I'm, I'm sure there were people that were talking to you, advising you, et cetera. Mm-hmm. What were they telling you as you're experiencing this? Because if you're in Stefan's spot or Iman's spot, right, it's, mm-hmm. okay, how do I navigate all this? This is, you know, this is a hard job anyway if you add all this stuff to it, how do you navigate? What did
2: people tell you? It's interesting because there is a nervousness in having this conversation when you're a young person, right? So lots of times, and I was very blessed in my career to have excellent mentors and excellent mentors of different races and genders and, and things of that nature. And people who were sensitive to this, even if I didn't, didn't say it. But there were times where you just kind of shut up and smile. You say, this is the world uh, you live in. This is what I've chosen. I just have to deal with it. And because there weren't a lot of faces in the room that looked like you, there weren't too many people you could go to and say, I am feeling or seeing this. What do you think? Right? So you had some mentors that were well-intentioned that would give you, frankly, what was horrible advice right? And then you have the mentors who kind of had to do what you're doing now, who are in a position where they're a bit powerless themselves, and they also give you horrible advice. I think one of the things we were talking about in PrEP is how many diverse attorneys are told, listen, work hard, keep your head down, and you'll be rewarded. And most people in the practice know that's ridiculous. I never got that advice. I've been doing this for
1: the better part of 23 years, and no one's ever told me to work hard.
3: I really wish our speakers could have seen your faces yesterday when I said that was the advice I got. I think that's the whole point of having diverse set of mentors, because I feel like a lot of minorities we feel like we have to only rely on our uh, folks that look like us because they have the experience similar things. So it makes sense they probably have a lot of the answers to what we're going through. But I think to your point nobody has told me like fake it until you make it i didn't receive that advice i would appreciate it and i think you know that could have really helped with my confidence meanwhile every time it was go to law school get good grades put your head down work really hard show up on time mm-hmm. be very responsive and the fact that even you david being a black man you received that so i wonder like does gender play into it or was or have I just been selecting the wrong mentors?
2: No, most definitely. M- most definitely. I um I I I've had the pleasure of working with a lot of women of color. And what I've found is their confidence typically does not match their skill set. And I can use you as an example, Amon. I am amazingly impressed with your ability. But I don't think so your I yeah, exactly. See, that's the kind of stuff I need from you, but there sometimes you I don't think your, your your confidence matches that. And I'll tell another story about a young woman I worked with at EY and I still work with, and I'm a huge fan of hers. She might be the best tax professional just from an ability standpoint I've ever worked with. I've never had to explain something to her twice. I say this all the time to her and other people. She's never made a mistake in the entire time we've worked together, but she doesn't have that confidence. I asked her once, I want you to do a presentation um, to the IRS for this case. And she fought me on it. She was like, no, I can't, no, no, I can't. I'm like, no, you're doing it. And she knocked it out of the park, blew it out of the water. It was, it was amazing. But you have these things that impact your confidence because you haven't been told or, or you have, and some, and some of it is, is, is imposter syndrome. But, but again, going back to competence and whiteness, right? So I, I said this the, the other day in a conversation with someone. If I take a team to a client, and that team is all black women, let's use that as as an example, I think for sure there will be two questions asked. And I think it's really the same question, but depending on the person and depending on how, how it wants to be framed. It's, is that team competent? Or will the client think that team is competent? And even some of us with the best of intentions, I think we'll ask that question even if we don't ask it out loud. But I don't think you will get the same thing if I put together a team of white men or if Nate puts together a team of white men. It's the system and it's the view of people. It's the idea that competence and whiteness goes together. And it's a system that we have that I think when it was set up, was set up with people with certain views that I think is held up now by people with the best intentions that don't share those views and sometimes don't realize that they are kind of furthering a system that was designed to exclude. And I think we need to kind of, on a micro level, as mentors, and I think this is something I want to talk about when we get into the career spotlight, and I say this particularly to mentors that look like Nate, to broaden your horizons to say, who am I mentoring? Because I think sometimes the people we mentor, it happens by accident, right. but because of all these things we talk about in society, they tend to tick certain boxes and our mentees tend to be like us, right? And I think we have to make a particular effort so that an Iman can hear fake it till you make it because that is a valuable piece of information.
0: Yeah. Speaking to how some of these messages are internalized as a mentee or as a starting professional, at every stage, whether it be college, law school, the work environment, the first thing you might be confronted with uh, by maybe not people inside a firm or the, the organization, but people outside the organization is, how did you get in? You know, what qualified you how is it that you're qualified? Uh, You know, affirmative action is real, uh, which (laughs) someone literally told me after I got (laughs) into law school. And the first stage of that is to not just blanketly accept that. But I fell into maybe the second bucket of either figuring out before I got to those confrontational conversations, what I thought qualified me, like how built up my resume and And that takes a lot of time. But when you get into the organization, you're spending time trying to confirm why you deserve to be there. You're trying to put enough things on your resume while you're at an organization or at a school to show your value and to prove and to be able to show if someone asks again why you are taking up a spot, you can say, This is why I'm taking up a spot because I'm doing much more than what the general spot taker or spot holder does. But all of that takes energy that someone who just feels welcome can spend that energy in doing what they want to do and, and and really kind of soaring. I think the most elevated response is really just letting that roll, roll off and say that that belief that, you know, someone took someone else's spot or someone else is not qualified without knowing anything about their qualifications, that should just, you know, be water off a duck's back. But I think also what's really challenging is that I know my life better than anyone else can know my life, and it is a really insidious part of racism and and prejudice culture how the burden is shifted from the accuser to the accused, <laughs> who has all the information about themselves to then say, okay, actually, I'm I'm worthy of going to a Harvard, and really, what is in you know something like my head is like. Oh, well, you know, I do like to nap sometimes, or yes. I, 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 guess, <laughs> I, I guess, I guess, I guess I didn't read every footnote, uh, you know, and, and, and you're holding yourself to a standard of a truly unsustainable standard of effort, of of perfection, that is just becomes destructive, that d- becomes toxic. And other people don't have to do that.
2: And Stefan, the other thing, yeah. I, I love what you're saying, but my kind of craziness Goes the other step where it's like, okay, if I don't do well, yeah, okay, I know my own limitations. But what does that mean for every other Black person that comes after me? Yeah. If I mess up, am I ruining it for everyone? Right? Because that was what kept me at night making the jump for me, why the sky? I was like, I'll be fine. I'm a partner. I'm going to have this on my resume. But if I go there and just bomb, have I kind of destroyed it for everyone else? And that's, it really is unfair because as you say, it takes up energy. And if you can't be relaxed doing some of the things that we do, and if you're not using your full, because tax is hard. Let's be frank. its I think it's fun, but it's hard. And it's so vast. And if we are kind of thinking about other things while doing that, it can put you at a disadvantage.
1: Yeah. Well, you're as close to a sure thing as as has ever come through this place. But the, the core point is that this background level of stress makes a hard job harder. So, I, I guess I'm curious, David, both from your longer experiences as well as Iman and Stefan, the people that are listening to this who look like me, who want to be better mentors, what are things that are useful versus not? I will tell you, uh, I'll say definitively work harder. Not useful, but beyond that, what else?
2: Well, I had this conversation uh, with with Fred Goldberg, and this may sound simple, but be a human being, right? We understand that there are limitations. We understand there are things people don't know, um, but being able to relate on that human level and being vulnerable, and I'll speak for myself. There's a lot of vulnerability in this position to kind of talk about these things. So, being vulnerable and saying, "Look," here are some things I don't know, here are some things I wanna know, here are some things I understand, helps to build that relationship. But at the same time, going back to, to earlier comments, do some research. Because um, what I like to say is, you know, my experience wasn't experienced in order to teach someone else something, right? So I can sit someone down and have the conversation, and I do a lot of the times, but that's a bit of a, and, and I think that's a privilege, right? So if I were to sit down with Stefan and he were to tell me about himself and he were to to tell me how, what's it like for a young gay man to go to Harvard Law School and come to this guy, that's a privilege. And in order to take part in that privilege, I think I have to do some work. So I don't need to know everything about that experience because I'll never know everything about that experience because it's going to differ from person to person and it's going to differ from some but I have to go to him with some basic knowledge and understanding because I don't know what trauma or what area I'm going to poke by asking what is a, or could possibly be a dumb question, right? It may not be a dumb question to me because I'm, and I may have all the best intentions in the world, but I have to be educated. And I, and I think that's the, that, that's the baseline for a lot of people who want to to, to do better or who, who want to count themselves amongst allies. I think that is the baseline amount of work, being a human being and doing some modicum of of, of research, because you would be surprised. And Nate, you may not be, but I think a lot of people would be surprised at how little some folks actually look into this when when they start
3: that conversation. Completely agree with that, David. Another thing that I would add is um, just be mindful of like cultural difference. Currently, I'm uh, the vice chair of um, a program with the ABA that matches students who are interested in transfer pricing with practitioners. Um, So these are, you know, very well-established folks that are willing to give their time. And I have a specific story. We have a candidate who I think really highly of, very engaged, but he's from Africa here for his LLM. So there is a huge cultural difference between him and his mentor. And when we asked about feedback, um, one of the things the mentor said is he doesn't reach out often. So I think he's, I think he's okay. You know, if he had questions, he would mm-hmm. reach out. So when I called him and asked, he said, "Hey, like in my culture, we're very mindful of people who are in power. I only reach out when I have really good questions because I'm trying to impress her. So if I have a career question or you know something that I think is small, I haven't reached out. That's why. So I think just like." In that instant, uh, we, of course, told the mentor everything worked out and she was like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. So picked it up from there, like reached out to him and like kind of like told him like explicitly, hey, of course, I'm busy, but if you need me, I'm available. And they were able to foster that relationship. And I think that's a good example of with a lot of diverse lawyers, you might not have the same background, so they might not know how to communicate with you. And that could kind of come off as like lack of interest or not willing to foster their relationship mm-hmm. when in reality, they're just trying to give you deference out of respect because that's what they're used to. So I think that uh, just that awareness of cultural difference and, you know, how different people manage different relationships will really, really go a long way.
2: Before we get to the final bell, so to speak, any last comments? Nate, Stefan, Amont? I think what can be
0: helpful is for partners or uh, higher ups looking at diverse talent is, you know, have faith in their potential, but try and leave the expectations, you know, out of the door. It seems that based on some of the conversations that we had about how memos with black names versus memos with white names are are, are judged, it's the level of scrutiny. it, It might be a level of scrutiny or like people are looking for Errors and then and then start to impute a lot of their uh, biases into the work. You know, it, it might be that associates come to the table with all of the drive uh, and all trying to learn, and, and and so maybe more effort can be done about changing you know expectations.
1: It's really been interesting to me to listen to you all talk about this today and and over the other days, right? I think the thing that is most surprising and alarming is the sense that you feel like you're flying without a net. And I I think it's incumbent on people who are in positions to mentor to make sure that you all realize you have a net because fundamentally that's how this works and that's how you're going to be successful. I wouldn't try to do tricks in the air either if I didn't think I had a net. And I, I think it's incumbent on all of us that are in positions of power, but particularly people in the profession that, you know, look sound and come from cultural backgrounds like I do, to give the net to everybody. And so I'm looking forward to hearing more of these discussions.
0: This episode has been sponsored by Nets
3: <laughs> 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 for me, I'm very hopeful and very optimistic just even having this conversation. And I feel very blessed to be at an organization that is okay to have these conversations. And I'm really excited to see what's to come.
1: Okay, you got your and plug in. It's it's fine. Don't worry. (laughs) There you go. And with that, we'd like to thank you for listening to Guilty Conscience.
2: (laughs) Thanks all.
3: Thank you, everyone.
0: Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Guilty Conscience. If you like what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss any future conversations. Scadden's tax team is recognized globally for providing clients with creative and innovative solutions to their most pressing transactional, planning, and controversy challenges. Additional information about Scadden can be found at scadden.com.